Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 26, Symbol Suit Flight. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, we talk about the symbol, the suit, the speech, and flight. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Last commentary episode, Clark meets Jor-El for the first time, and he learns his other name and that he comes from Krypton. Why Krypton? Well, it seems to be an homage to one of Superman's influences, John Carter of Mars, who awakened on an alien planet, who derived his powers from the difference in gravity, and fought for the city of helium. Instead of helium, the second most abundant element in the universe, another noble gas with a more exotic disposition was selected, one found in only one parts per million in our atmosphere, Krypton. Now, aside from John Carter, Superman was inspired by several other contemporaries at the time. While never explicitly confirmed, the character Hugo Danner saw publication in 1930 and had a scientist father who raised Danner in rural America to hide his powers. Those powers, which included strength and leaping compared to an ant and a grasshopper, and being impervious to a bursting artillery shell, until his feats would be foist upon the world, such as lifting a car over his head. Superman liberally lifted from the pulp hero Doc Savage, whose real first name was Clark, had an arctic fortress of solitude that predated Superman's, bore the monikers of the Man of Bronze and the Man of Tomorrow first, and in a 1934 house ad was described as Superman, the year that the Superman that we know and love is said to have been developed. Of course, longtime Superman fans will know that Siegel and Schuster attempted to sell their first Superman in 1933's Reign of Superman, which was a dark tale of a villainous mad scientist and his murderous telepath guinea pig. Unable to sell that story, their second Superman was a hero in The Superman, and he was a powerless hero inspired by Doc Savage and meant to supplant Detective Dan. But that concept also couldn't find a buyer, and that idea would eventually become the character Slam Bradley. However, their third attempt would be sold after a five-year journey and featured on the cover of Action Comics No. 1 in 1938. In 1941, Siegel would be a bit more diffuse in attributing his inspiration, saying, quote, I'm lying in bed counting sheep when all of a sudden it hits me. I conceive of a character like Samson, Hercules, and all the strongmen I have ever heard tell of rolled into one, only more so. 
Like any teenager, Siegel and Schuster were inspired by everything that they had consumed and enjoyed. But if there were other strongmen and vigilante pulp heroes, why did Superman stand out? What came together to turn these confluence of elements into something that would start a genre? Well, these are big and well-trod questions that aren't this show, but maybe we can just talk about just a thin slice of it, a small sample with this episode. On this show, I often ask you to put yourselves into the shoes of others, to think and feel like them. And if you're a 10-year-old in 1938, what inspires you to buy this book with a character who isn't even named? Aside from the pop of color common to all comics and the feats of strength perhaps seen with other sci-fi strongmen, there was the suit and the symbol. This episode will talk a little bit about that symbol and the suit. Really, you could do an entire book or documentary on those elements, but we're going to survey the history of both and then look at how Man of Steel honors that history. I'm going to start with what I consider to be one of the most distinctive things about Superman, the symbol, not the strength. The comic strips have already seen the likes of Hugo Hercules and Samson Strongman, or perhaps more familiar to those today, Popeye the Sailor Man. Not even the costume. The Phantom was the first hero in a skin-tight costume. February 1936, and Les Daniels, the author of Superman the Complete History, proposes that Siegel and Schuster's October 1936 character, Dr. Occult, was a tryout of their favorite unsold Superman, noting that Dr. Occult, quote, acquired immense strength, the power of flight, a blue costume, and a red cape, unquote. However, what none of these characters had was a distinct and prominently displayed symbol or logo emblazoned across their chest to immediately identify and distinguish this character from all others. Nothing so generic as a skull or anchor tattoo, but a symbol that reinforced the identity of the character and made it uniquely theirs. The shield has evolved and changed throughout Superman's history, but rarely is it unrecognizable. Graphic designer and editor-in-chief of the Superman homepage, Steve Eunice, painstakingly compiled an epic chart showcasing over 140 official designs spanning 75 years. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see for yourself. From the very beginning, a stylized red S on a yellow crest against the field of blue of Superman's chest. The earliest concept art and the cover of Action Comics show an elegant shield with cutouts which immediately summon to mind a police badge or shield, which was still reflected somewhat in the more easily drawn triangular shield within the actual comics, and that badge idea would be better captured when the shield took on its more familiar pentagonal shape in later years. This idea of a crest or shield recalled someone chivalrous with a coat of arms or a sworn protector who wanted the public to know that he would protect the weak, the defenseless, helpless, and fight for the general welfare of all. This golden badge didn't just cover his heart, but his whole chest, as if to say, this consumed his whole being. And it would be not just a 9-to-5 job where your badge is retired with your keys in your wallet upon coming home. This was his central purpose, his crusade. A symbol, like a heraldic crest, or the sign of the cross worn on the tabards or surcoats of knights committed to a singular purpose, even on to death. This was an elegant and unique symbol, reinforcing the brand every time it was seen. S. S for Superman. What's so astounding about this is how incredibly masterful this would become in the marriage of merchandising or business with the creativity of comics. 
Siegel and Schuster didn't lack experience in the industry. By the time Superman was sold and published, they were five-year veterans and in their 20s, but they lacked legal and business expertise. Although three years their senior, Bob Kane had three years less experience in the industry, but he had a skillful attorney for a father who secured Kane's concerns through rigorous negotiation. The spectrum of Finger, Kane, Schuster, and Siegel would be a fascinating exploration, but that's another show. Yet, nonetheless, the addition of this element was prescient. The Lanham Act wouldn't be passed until 1946, but this symbol would set Superman apart even among an explosion of imitators and competitors. National Comics had the foresight to form the subsidiary Superman Inc. to start licensing merchandise and the careful stewardship of their intellectual property would keep Superman economically relevant through the lean times. Superman's shield predates the Lanham Act and the modern USPTO, but still operated on the same basic principles. A legally protected mark is distinct enough to allow consumers to distinguish the source of the product from others. Characters before might have had their calling cards, the Mark of Zorro or the Scarlet Pimpernel, but Superman was emblazoned with his mark which with its color, shape, and style couldn't be confused for anyone else. To this day, casual fans may confuse which lightning bolts go with what heroes, but the distinctiveness of Superman's mark means that he could stand out in the market, and he could legally defend his mark, and he could economically exploit his mark through licensing. What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well, here it's an S. The Superman S is said to be the second most recognizable symbol on the planet other than the Christian cross. This economic motive may help clarify the perpetual change and evolution the mark seems to undergo with time, mediums, and even movies. Many times we reconcile this as a creative choice. Man of Steel doesn't look like Returns or the comics because it's a different reality. And certainly creative people are involved in developing distinguishing designs. But the ability to create a separate or distinct license for each new logo is too lucrative to ignore. In connection with the recent licensing expo, Karen McTire, executive VP of consumer products at Warner Brothers, was quick to point out the licensing opportunities created by Batman v Superman, including the costumes, vehicles, and of course, the new logos, which, quote, all create really merchandisable elements for all our partners, end quote. The subtle and beautiful changes to Superman's costume for Batman v Superman mean a second round of licensing, and those dollars and sense mean the lifeblood of the living legend. Emphasis on living. That perpetual tension between maintaining recognition but changing just enough to offer something new permeates Superman throughout his history, the business behind him, and the creative process. We'll talk about it a little later, but the market drives the demand for difference, and that explains much of the approach to Man of Steel, including the incredible detail that went into rationalizing the symbol, which would be so easy to simply take for granted. For a symbol so well known, the filmmakers could have simply just said, you know what it is, just accept it. Instead, they were committed to getting at the why of the symbol and weaving it into their world. The fact that the S in a shield exists on the chest of a superhero from another planet is a huge design problem. So if the S glyph is related to Superman and the House of L, we see it on Jurel and we see it on Lara as well. 
When you look at the castle costumes, they all have their glyphs, their shields. We looked a lot at medieval heraldry and symbols of dynasties and guilds and things, so we created our own version of that. You have to go and find the why of it. You know, it's like an illuminated text. There's a reason why those monks have been redrawing that same thing for a thousand years. For an opportunity so lucrative, the studio could have manipulated the story to suit the marketing, but they didn't. Let's just say that I am a fan of the story, so whatever I did as far as um, if I shuffled things or if I moved things around, it was all based on love, and it was it's an educated move rather than just like a boardroom decision that's like a marketing thing like wouldn't it be cool if he had uh his suit's blue wouldn't it be people love pink you know it should be pink you know because we did a we had a focus group and everyone wanted like you know the suit to be a different color yeah you know we didn't make the movie that way the movie's made from my point of view the movie's made with me making all the decisions and it allows there to be and i love the character and so you get like a real pure sort of mythological love of the character that I have, but also you get all the canon, you get all the stuff that I love about Superman is in there. You can look deep in there and it's deep. And so, yeah, I I was nervous about some of the moves I was making, but a lot of it, because it was really based on me loving the character, I felt like it would be okay in the end. Instead, there was a creative love and passion driving it, and Warner Brothers agreed to commission a linguist, Dr. Christine Schreyer, to devise a language and system of glyphs with graphic designer Kirsten Franson, which would realistically accommodate that stylized S we all know so well. The production designer for Man of Steel read about my research on Navi and then contacted me and asked me to consult about possibly bringing Kryptonian language in to the movie Man of Steel. I got to hear about the plot two years before anybody else did. When you're looking at developing a language, one of the basic things to start with, the building blocks of language are sound, and that's the study of phonology. And then from there, we move on to look at morphology, or the study of how words are put together. So after I had looked at the sounds of Kryptonian, then I thought about how words could be put together. And then from there, we look at how words can then be put into sentences, and what kind of sentence structure will be in that language. We looked at a lot of the names that had previously been in the canon, in comic books, in the movies, in various other TV shows, to see what kind of sounds were already available to us through the names, such as Kal-El is the name for Clark Kent when he's on Krypton, and Jor-El. So we knew J was a sound because Jor-El was one of the characters. So I looked at all of those and then came up with ideas about basic sounds for the language. Another thing we looked at when we were creating the Kryptonian language was the sentence structure. So in English, we say subject, verb, object. I saw him. In Kryptonian, because people were being very selfish and they were using all their resources, but they were also had this intense association with their objects, we changed that around so it was subject, object, verb. The objects had more of a prominence, so that was something else that we considered. This is the first time a created language has gone along with symbols that have been shown, so there is potential for fans to learn the language. And my students have looked very extensively at Klingon, Navi, Esperanto, Dothraki. So now it'll be interesting for my students to look at the language I created to see what happens with that, but also how it relates back to the culture of the world of Krypton. If you want to know more about Dr. Schreier's involvement in Man of Steel, she's done a number of interviews, and I'll put a few links in the show notes. While we never hear the Kryptonian tongue spoken in the film, that level of detail and dedication to total world building finds its way into the nooks and crannies of your subconscious when you're taking in Krypton. In Superman's new Batman v Superman costume, we see lines of Kryptonian writing laced into the heart of his symbol and onto the cuffs of his sleeves. Dr. Schreier knows what they say, but isn't at liberty to tell us at this time. 
Hopefully we'll learn what they say one day. But that meticulous attention to detail, world building, and strategic exploitation of such efforts all follow in the footsteps of previous quote-unquote unfilmable works like The Lord of the Rings and Watchmen, which were brought to life. Of course, this is after three quarters of a century of technology, production, business, and law honed into a scalpel. For Siegel and Schuster, they somewhat stumbled into this secret of the symbol, which would become a success. At the time, their aim wasn't to spawn an industry or an icon, but to sell yet another in a line of characters so that they could keep doing comics. When accounting for who came up with what, when, that would change with the storyteller over the years. But here's at least one account from the BBC 1980 documentary, Superman, Comic Strip Hero, released shortly after the American premiere of Superman 2, but before the UK premiere. Well, Superman came about because uh, both Joe Schuster and I were uh, great science fiction fans back in the 1930s. And to fill you in a little on the really the beginning of it all, one night, as has been mentioned in uh, past stories, ideas kept coming to me, and I kept getting up again and again during the night and just jotting down these ideas and uh, these scripts until uh, very early the next morning I dashed over to Joe's house which is about 10 blocks away. I I showed him the uh, script of Superman, the entirely new concept in which there would be a meek mild man, a reporter, Clark Kent, uh, Lois Lane who scorned him but who was uh, who flipped over uh, Superman not knowing that Superman and Clark Kent were one and the same person. you want, to stay, was, you want to stay with your reaction? Well, I was, was very, you... very excited about the whole idea. I just, uh, I just uh, uh, took on uh, the same enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I thought it was a terrific idea, and we went right to work uh, right then and there. You sat down we at the drawing at, board, we and, spent you, the and you began day. designing the, uh, the way the characters yeah, would look, Yeah, we right? spent the entire day working on it, all afternoon, and, and we uh, at the drawing board. Jerry and I, mm-hmm. and uh, now I remember that the uh, matter of, of the costuming of Superman yeah, came up, and yeah, I, I remember uh-huh. two suggestions I made well, to you. One uh-huh. that the letter S well, be be on his chest. Right, as I a wanted symbol. to give him a skin-tight costume to to show up his physique, for one thing, and then Jerry suggested putting on a, a cape, a cape, so that when the character zooms through the air, would give more more action and movement to the character. Make it look character. like he's really flying. And the bravery. And of course, yeah, you added all those additional things like the the boots and the belt and the and and the whatever. Make it as simple as possible. Right. You were saying that some of the the Superman poses. um, How did you how did you get them? Yes, I was a great fan of Douglas Fairbanks, and uh, so was Jerry. And uh, I tried to use uh, uh, that his stance, uh, the way Douglas Fairbanks looked in the, the Black Pirate. His hands on his hips, and this, uh, this Robin Hood, and the Mark of Zorro, and, and all of those, he had this marvelous uh, attitude, which uh, Jerry and I agree. Well, in writing the script, I had Douglas Fairbanks very much in mind in the athletic stunts that he did, too. So it, it, the influence of Douglas Fairbanks was not only in the art, but also in the visual action.
Each would claim the cape and the symbol on different occasions with varying degrees of jealousy, but there you could hear some of the influences vaguely referenced. Ironically, the same kinds of concerns about legal credit that forced DC to disown Siegel after he sued for sole ownership and lost in 1948 would mean that Siegel would always show reluctance to credit his contemporary influences or ghostwriters definitively, leaving much of it to inference and speculation. Nonetheless, as startling and as confronting as Superman's costume might be today in a parallel world where he never existed, for the readers at the time, the inspiration for the costume made it more than clear that Superman was a strong man among strong men. Brad Ricca explains to The National. Some of the things that seem kind of silly now, but the, the, the boots and the, the underwear on the outside, that comes from some of Joe's reading material? Yeah, so, I mean, strong men are, are really popular, just like physical fitness. Yeah. So you would, they would tour, you know, the country, and, and they were often always from Europe, you know? It would be uh, the great Vlanko, or, you know, they would have these really cool names, and they would come in, you know, you'd pay tickets, you'd buy a ticket to see them, and they'd be sold out for weeks, and they would come out, you know, on the stage, and they would lift something, you know, and everyone would, like, pass out. This is so crazy. But they wore the same boots. They had the underwear, you know, sometimes the underwear was outside the tights, right? Um, they had the short capes, and they had these big, you know, important names, and they were very kind of, you know, these ethnic supermen. And the funny thing, too, is the, the big trick that none of them could do um, you know, the car is this big symbol of, you know, the rich American, and they always, the strongmen, always wanted to lift a car, um, but they couldn't do it. It was just too hard. There was one guy who could do it, but there were like all these pulleys and levers, so nobody, you know, it wasn't as good. So, you know, is it any coincidence on the cover of Action Comics 1? First Superman's, cover, right. Right. He's got that famous shot of yeah. him lifting that car, people running in fear. Yeah. And this history isn't lost on the filmmakers. The reason why his underwear is on the outside of his pants, it's a leftover from Victorian era strongman. Man of Steel intentionally summons to mind chainmail under the suit to bring to mind a feudal society where even the planet's preeminent scientist has a citadel, suits of armor, a loyal mount, and martial training. Superman's costume, at the time, was also completely inspired. The powers and the colors brought to mind the science fiction heroes like Flash Gordon, the tights of strongmen, the cape and the boots of the adventurous swashbuckler, and the shield of a knight or a policeman. Even without opening the comic and reading the first page, kids knew they were in for something special. Special. Unsurprisingly, irrespective of the actual mechanism of Superman's powers, children would attribute Superman's powers to the suit. Larry Ty's 2012 book, Superman, The High-Flying History of America's Most Enduring Hero, chronicles the concerning confusion. Stories of kids who tried to take wing and fly, as Jerry Siegel had as a child, were always a sore spot for Superman, and never more so than in that era of the Inquisition. Newspapers glommed on to the tales. Eight-year-old Larry King of Columbus, Ohio, spread his homemade cape over his back and jumped from his second-floor fire escape, explaining from his hospital bed that I thought the air would get under my towel and float me down like it does Superman. James Henderson, another eight-year-old second-story boy, took off in his Superman suit and landed with a sprained ankle. The darn thing wouldn't work. The Des Moines youngster complained of his costume. Twelve-year-old Robert Van Gossig of New York wasn't so lucky. He slipped on a wet ledge while playing Superman on his tenement roof and plunged to his death. 
After Jerry read articles like those, his comic book Superman warned readers that only he could perform such feats of daring-do without getting hurt. Superman costumes carried similar cautions. It was one thing for young fans to break their beds as they pretended to fly. It was quite another for them to break their necks. We were very conscious of that, recalls Jay Emmett, who oversaw the licensing of Superman products. We couldn't have kids buying costumes if they were going to jump out the window. While these were young children, I think even adults can relate to feeling empowered through dress. Whether it's a power suit, cultural costume, Halloween, or cosplay, we know the transformation of our exterior can be an opportunity for empowerment, self-expression, cultural connection, escape from self, or adoption of authority. The idea of transformation is deeply entrenched in the human psyche and experience, and part of the brilliance of the Superman concept, that he isn't publicly Superman all the time. Whether it's a persona that he reveals or it's an occupation that he puts on, that duality and transformation is in every era and in some form or fashion with varying degrees of psychological nuance. In his thesis of Man of Steel, Real Analysis, that's R-E-E-L, proposes that Clark emerging from the scout ship in costume for the first time is not his rebirth as Superman, but a transfiguration. The term transfiguration comes from the Christian tradition, but I'll let Chuck Noe's church briefly explain what it is and its significance. The transfiguration of Jesus is described in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Many consider it one of the miracles of Jesus, but different from the others, because it's not performed by Jesus, but it happens to him. Now, all three gospel accounts tell us that Jesus and three of his disciples go up on a mountain where the transfiguration occurs. Jesus shines with bright rays of light, or as Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 describes it, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white, a phrase laundry detergent companies would later borrow. In the gospel according to Luke 9, verse 29, the appearance of his face changed. Then in Mark 9, verse 2, quote, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them." And then there appeared to the disciples the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. A cloud overshadows them, and from the cloud a voice says, again, according to Matthew's Gospel, "'This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him.'" It is Jesus glorified. Now, all three synoptic Gospels relate very much the same story of the Transfiguration. Uh, It's widely considered a momentous event because it is a time in which human nature and God meet. The temporal and the eternal, uh, with Jesus seen as the connection, like a bridge between heaven and earth. The Transfiguration is also a bridge between Jesus' public ministry and his passion. From the time of the Transfiguration, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem and the cross. I think you could easily draw some additional parallels there, but that's another show. We don't need to get theological. From a secular perspective, you can't deny... Two score a ten would be just fine, but I'd rather be dressed to the nines. It's a truth you can't refute. Nothing suits me like a suit. And Henry Cavill shares some thoughts and experiences on the power of the suit. There's something very special about this costume, okay? Yes, I went through the various stages of the concepts and and the different sort of glyphs and and different lengths of cape and different materials. But once it was all finally put together and they said, this is the finished product. This is is the suit. This This is the final thing. Put it on and I turned around and looked in the mirror 
and there's something truly special about it. There's a, there's a, a genuine physical energy, almost visual energy, which it has. And I like to liken it to when someone cooks you a delicious meal and you can taste the love in it. It may be all the same ingredients, but there's something different about it because someone genuinely cared while creating this thing for you. With the suit, it could have been all the same materials, but the people who put it together, the people who came up with the concepts, the people who created it, had that love and affection for the character and realized the power and the importance of it and that made this suit special well we went through months of putting the suit together and trying different materials and different sort of styles and different lengths of cape different size of s shield different s's and made this thing into something truly special it has like a an almost physical energy about it and it affects people people will, you know, stand straighter or go, oh, hey, hey, man, when they see you in the suit. It's something I can't quite put a word to. And there is some merit to the idea that the suit contributes to Superman's invulnerability in some iterations. In the 1950s television series, the writers cooked up a brilliant explanation for the indestructibility of Superman's famous suit. There's a baby in it! Land's sakes alive! The suit was made by his adoptive Earth parents, the Kents, out of the Kryptonian blanket that accompanied baby Kal-El to Earth. Here, burn much? Not burned at all. Blanket ain't even scorched. The Kents said, well, let's take these blankets that shotguns can't blast through and dynamite can't blow up and see if we can reweave them into something. Using Clark's heat vision, they would sever the threads and eventually they became his super suit. As we've discussed in the past on this show, it's possible that Superman's suit in Man of Steel is invulnerable. I waffle back and forth on whether it's the suit or not. We definitely should revisit the issue again after Batman v Superman, but a little bit of production-based speculation. Since the suit's pattern is meant to give the impression of chain-linked armor, but isn't in fact actually chain-linked armor, might that suggest that even in Batman v Superman, we won't see the suit get damaged, at least not close up, because there would be no broken or frayed links in the non-existent chainmail to show in any close-up damage. There are many ways to shoot around that or to fix the issue with visual effects, but it's just something to think about. The kind of damage we see to the suit could ruin the illusion for modern audiences. Maybe. Let's briefly talk about the evolution of Superman's audience and how that was reflected in the suit. In the 1940s, census data via NPR indicates that only 5% of the population had college degrees and that the explosion of superhero comics was targeted at 8 to 10 year olds who would kick the comic habit by their mid-teens. Incidentally, Wonder Woman's creator William Marston's PhD was something that distinguished him and his creation from his contemporaries, but that's another episode. For the writers and the readers at the time, Gravity and Grasshoppers was as good as any explanation. For these young audience members, the illusion was believed to be so delicate that Kirk Allen, star of the first live-action Superman serial, wasn't permitted to be credited as Superman. I had to do everything as Superman. I had to do everything very seriously so that uh, the kids would believe it. And I couldn't, I didn't dare lampoon anything or make fun of it. So... 
and many times I felt very ridiculous doing some of the things, you know. I mean, it's not the ordinary kind of acting, you know. You do things and you say, how in the heck can a fellow do this? But I had to do it seriously. I didn't dare make fun of it, you see. They were protecting the image so much that in the picture, in the first one I did, I didn't get billing as Superman. So when the cast of characters came on the screen, it read uh, Superman as Superman, uh, Clark Kent, Kirk Allen. <laughs> now, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody that I played Superman. Any publicity that came out with me in the uniform just said Superman. One of my very favorite little squibs was in the trade paper here we call Variety. It heads out saying, Hail the Forgotten Man. This is a salute to Hollywood's unknown actor. Most thespians are embittered over one thing or another, but the one with the most reason to hate the world is the star of Columbia's Superman. He plays the title role in the serial. He gets no billing. He's listed simply as Superman. Columbia doesn't want to insult the cliffhanger Moppet's audience with the advice that anyone but the great man himself could play the role, you see. A toast then, gentlemen, to that Superman among men the mere man who plays Superman, Kirk Allen. <laughs> uh, crediting Allen seemed almost like confronting kids with Santa's sincerity. This little guy was crazy for Christmas. We used to wrap his presents in lead foil so he couldn't peek. You mean Santa wrapped them? Oh, of course, dear. In the 1950s, George Reeve was beset by fans or hecklers unable to separate fantasy from reality. George Reeves became a household name playing Superman in the TV serials of the 50s. But whenever he appeared in public, he'd be challenged to fly or even assaulted to see if he was truly invulnerable. Of course, as the times changed, so would the superheroes. Here's a short Nightline excerpt. The superheroes themselves have changed their tunes ever so slightly over the years in response to the challenges we need them to tackle. It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Superman first arrived from the planet Krypton in the gathering storm before World War II. In the cartoons of those early days, he fought Nazis. Later, Vietnam and Watergate made us cynical. Straight arrow do-gooders suddenly seemed dated. Maybe that's why the Batman of the 60s wouldn't dare take this stuff too seriously. And for die-hard fans, admitting you like men in tights became about as cool as attending a Star Trek convention. It, for a long time, it was comics that had this air of disrespectability. The whole history of comics is fascinating, but in our survey, we're just going to fast forward to the early 80s and listen in on the thoughts of art students discussing superheroes. Their teacher, the legendary Will Eisner, teaching his course on sequential art at the School of Visual Arts, SVA, in the heart of New York City. Superhero is, in effect, a character created by you to satisfy a fantasy need of the reader because we're delivering fantasy i think superheroes are really played out now and there's no there's no place for them anymore uh well all right let's let's kick it around what do you think you fellows have been working on superhero characters uh i don't agree because you said before you should be sensitive to your market and your audience and i think there's still a market for superheroes even for children and I think even for an older audience, if the scripts are more literate. But they make no sense. I mean, look at Supergirl. Every time she does something, she the Superman has to come in and pull her out of the mess. They don't even let her do it by herself. Those scripts are aimed towards kids. I'm saying that there could why be better Why does a woman always have to mess up? I mean, she doesn't even, there's no, there's no superhero for kids. There's no superhero for women. The superheroes well, there are, are for 13-year-old boys with pocket calculators who think that they'll be him someday. 
Okay, Lisa, what, what do you think about this? Um, well, superheroes, I, I agree with Gwen that they're really, the ones that you see now in magazines are really overdone, and it seems that they do the same thing over and over again. I, I think what you need is a refreshing point of view and something that says something. Even with these young students, you can hear the arguments that echo to this day, as well as the sentiments that, in a few short years, would percolate into Watchmen, Mouse, DKR, Crisis, and beyond. We can contrast the audience from the 1940s to 2012, going from 5% of the population having higher degrees to 39%. In 1933, Jerry and Joe were creating comics while still in high school. Today, the writers of Action Comics and Superman have grown graduated and attended Yale, Oxford, NYU, and UC Berkeley. That doesn't mean that education makes you smarter or better, but it's going to change the scope and nature of your writing. A recent comiXology survey found that most of its readership falls between the 27 to 36 age bracket, and a survey of brick-and-mortar retailers skewed even older. The explanations that worked in the 1940s would have a hard time holding up today. The audience for Superman has grown up, and grown more sophisticated, and so Superman grew along with us. In 1978, Superman the movie had the tagline, You Will Believe a Man Can Fly, which was a testament to the new post-Star Wars era of compositing and visual effects. While verisimilitude was Donner's visual creed, there was a lighthearted wink of camp or cartoonishness meant to acknowledge that this wasn't our world, and that served the film quite well, even if it did nothing to change the minds of those SVA students in 1981. Today, Man of Steel's mission could be a truncation of the tagline to You Will Believe. I think there was an assumption that because because the Dark Knight trilogy was gritty that we would also make the Superman film gritty. Yeah. And Chris likes to use the word relatable, which I think is probably a better and more useful word than more real or realistic. We tried to make Superman relatable, and relatable doesn't necessarily mean grim and gritty. It just means relatable. So it just means you can't take things for granted. You can't just assume, oh, he comes from another planet and everyone accepts that. So you have to take everything at face value. He's an alien. The fact that he exists means that there's intelligent life in the universe. That's a big deal. And so you have to kind of follow that back to its logical conclusion. He is special and he is different and he would be special even if he had no superpowers. Our approach was not a comic book Superman. It was just to do a more realistic Superman, a Superman that exists in a real world. What Chris and David did was let's let the audience participate in the experience of being Superman without breaking the things that make him Superman. They were able to sort of make him relatable, ground him and make him feel real. He wanted to give the film this feeling that even though we're dealing with a superhero, this could be going on, or maybe it could happen tomorrow. We tried to land Superman in America. It was really important to ground him in a reality that we can understand. This story is a very realistic mirror. It's a 2012-2013 world. We wanted to have real places. We didn't want Superman to crash into a fictitious location. We wanted everything to feel as real as possible. There are ways into the story through that contemporary world. There's a real connection for the audience to understand this is our contemporary condition. The most minute little detail all the way to the biggest, broadest concept, all of it gets the same attention. It really makes the movie deeper and more interesting on every level. Reality was a tool for connecting to modern, sophisticated audiences 
and Superman skeptics who didn't simply allow or accept those totems and traditions that fans took for granted. It was not an indictment of Superman, as he had been, but an acknowledgement that he had not been rendered so rationally to date beyond the photorealistic visuals of artists like Alex Ross, and it was a way to focus the approach to the film to something fresh and believable, and to connect with the audience. It was a way in for the rest of the world, and not the end goal of the film. No longer were they preaching to the choir of the converted, but showing Superman can withstand the scrutiny of reality, and still be an aspirational and inspirational figure of hope, fortitude, and nobility. We could talk way more on that, but I just wanted all of that to act as a preamble to the approach taken with Man of Steel and the changes to the costume. Tradition was ever-present in the mind, but so was understanding the mechanics, rationale, history, and the why of their design. Admirably, many of the design choices were driven by storytelling, approaching it from a cultural perspective first. The filmmakers built a culture to support the reality of the costume. Superman's outfit features a cape and skin-tight suit. This daily attire might seem eccentric at first, but what we have since learned is that Krypton was a cape culture. What they wore was representative of their family dynasty. Upon review of papers obtained by our investigators and according to genealogy experts, there were likely 14 houses that represent the oldest and most elite family lines in Kryptonian society. Each of the house's emblems or glyphs would adorn their homes and clothing. The material of the skin suit appears to be made of interlocking locking links, similar to medieval chainmail. It seems to be a very common piece of clothing that they would then layer other garments and robes on top of. The skin suit was replete with boots, gauntlet, trunk, belt, and buckle. The fabrics of the various capes are closest to what we know as velvet, or hardened leather with raised textures. When we met Superman, an S adorned a shield on his chest. At first, we interpreted this mark literally, but as he explained, on Krypton, it's a symbol that means hope. Once culture became the answer for why the costume existed, that answer logically influenced the design of the costume itself, including the ultimate decision to depart from tradition and remove the red trunks. And I love the underwear, personally. I honestly do. I tried hard to get the underwear. I would like tell the costume designers, like, okay, we gotta try a version with the underwear, though. And they'd show it to me, and i go like, wow, that's underwear, isn't it? Okay. Okay. Let's try it one more time. Let's take another look at it. And the truth is, is that for me, once we made the costume cultural, like we did not do the version where Martha sewed the costume out of the blanket. We wanted the costume to be cultural to Krypton. And once we did that, and when they're on Krypton, you see like everyone has a version of the skin suit on. They, that's like a thing that exists within Kryptonian culture. And so I just felt like once you do that, then you would add a whole planet of people who had their underwear on the outside of their pants, which is possible. You know, it's fashion, right? Like who knows? They probably think ties are crazy on Krypton, but I just felt like it, it was a little bit harder in that from that point of view to keep it. You've heard me say it on the show before, I'm a fan of the trunks and consider them a lightning rod for criticism and a way of telling where the critic is coming from. That acceptance and dialogue, though, is always metatextual, where I have the weight of 75 years of tradition behind me to back up my acceptance and adoption of the briefs. Within the reality of the film, Clark has no such world-breaking benefit. When he sees the costume for the first time, the filmmakers want to convey 
way a plausible enthusiasm for that costume, something that shows his heritage, that bears the symbol of his family house, which is armor and has that cool cape. Yes, it's still odd and alien, but the form and the function make the fashion readily acceptable because the filmmakers guided the design in that direction. Contrast that against a suit with the briefs. Within the reality of the world, it would cause Clark to raise an eyebrow, being so contrary to our ordinary expectations. Heraldry, armor, and the drama of a cape are all relatable, but briefs on the outside of pants today in a world without Superman is something hard for Clark to just embrace. Snyder acknowledges that he could have made it Kryptonian fashion by fiat, but when that fashion interfaces with Clark's human expectations, there would be unnecessary narrative friction to get Clark to accept so radical fashion. Wearing the armor of your people and the crest of your family is a bit different than wearing the fashion of your people, especially if it clashes so much with your normal expectations. Maybe. 20 years from now, we may be enjoying a Superman film where the trunks have returned and it's executed believably and seamlessly. Let's all be happy and hopeful and live long enough to see that version too. Much like my position on color grading, for me, I'm less interested in the binary of the end result. Brief outside the pants or no, secret identity love triangle or no, desaturation filters or no, etc. But rather, I'm interested in the reasons for getting there. It would have been so easy to simply stick with tradition and not worry about the consistency of their approach in exploring the why and the implications of everything. They could have waved off the idea that he's humanity's first contact with an alien, or just said, look, that's just what Superman wears. But instead, they took a hard look at how these things might actually interact with reality. Even if they could cross that bridge where all Kryptonians wear trunks outside their pants, under an approach where every implication is allowed to reach its logical conclusion, how could the Kryptonians or Superman interact with the rest of the human players without snickering comments or editorials about the fashion choice? Colonel Hardy probably would have had some choice words for such a design, and even with the suit as is, Martha offers the dryly humorous, nice suit at his costume. Really, how could you not comment, especially if there were red briefs? I'm gonna cut the New 52 comic parallels for time, since we haven't even gotten to Jor-El's speech yet. Basically, it was a series of interviews showing that the decision was independently made by the filmmakers and the comics. Also, a short bit about debunking the idea that either was necessarily tied to ongoing lawsuits, but I'm going to hold that back for a future episode, mailbag, or blog post. For now, to appreciate the work and the effort behind the suit, I'm going to play a clip that looks behind the scenes at the costume design process. Hopefully, you'll see how lovingly and painstakingly meticulous Man of Steel's production was. I'm going to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll dive into Jor-El's speech and Superman learning to fly. So, we're going to make a Superman movie. Okay. First thing you got to figure out is what's the suit going to look like? And especially a modern one, what's the S going to look like? You have to honor what has been done and what the canon is and what the suit looks like has been around for a very long time. But yet at the same time, you want to modernize it. But what was also really important is for it to fit in Kryptonian society. We really very much wanted the suit to have come from someplace, to come from that legacy of Krypton. And so we had to create a world where that kind of outfit was commonplace. 
And rather than the traditional thing, which is the, was made out of the cloth that the, his parents wrapped him in when he was sent off from Krypton, in our version, the Superman suit is in a sense, it's like the foundation, it's the undergarment that all Kryptonians wear. It's kind of like what a, what a medieval chainmail suit is to the knights of, of the medieval times. That's the same as our, our sort of Superman suit, which in fact has a chainmail motive on it. Red underwear? I probably looked at hundreds of versions with the underwear. I mean, I tried, honestly. I said, okay, well, let's see if we can make it work because it's Superman. But it's that fine line of reinventing him, but still seeing him in there. He has a red cape. He has an S on his chest. He has a blue suit. He has red boots. He's Superman. I love it. I think it's um, a really good modernization of something very classic. It's got a very alien feel to it, while being recognizable as the suit that we know and love. And the S, I don't know what it means. It's, I don't know, Superman or something, right? What are you kidding me? <laughs> it's the symbol of hope. Traditionally, you do a lot of sculpting in clay and make your molds, but for our Superman suit, we wanted the, the lines and the details to be extremely precise. So we drew it all in a 3D um, application in the computer so we could get right into the detail and make sure it was looking exactly how we wanted it. The belt, the buckle, the boot trim, the trunks, the belt, everything was kind of obsessed over in every little detail. And in general, we're just uh, adjusting the thickness of a lot of these um, pieces. So it really feels like, um, you know, they're more integrated with the suit, that they just sort of are like almost like an embossing. And with just some general R&D work that we're doing with the way that the cape attaches to the suit, you know, there's a lot going on here. You're trying to make something beautiful and sculptural disappear into an impossibly thin, you know, membrane here and make it all look as beautiful as possible because, you know, we're going to be really close up uh, for a lot of the movies, so we're spending a lot of time and resources in getting that right. It definitely res pays respect to the classical details of the Superman costume, but we're rendering it in a very um, high-tech, current kind of a process. On to Jor-El's voiceover as Kal-El emerges from the scout ship. Why am I so different from them? A sun that's younger and brighter than Krypton's was. Your cells have drunk in its radiation, strengthening your muscles, your skin, your senses. Earth's gravity is weaker, yet its atmosphere is more nourishing. You've grown stronger here than I ever could have imagined. The only way to know how strong is to keep testing your limits. In the past, I've focused a lot on the mechanics of Superman's powers with respect to these lines, and you can go back and listen to those episodes. So this time, I want to focus on how this dialogue lands on Clark. Yes, Clark is learning the mechanics of his powers and why an alien like himself can thrive on a different world, but consider what that means for a moment. When Clark was growing up, he didn't know anything about his powers. At age 13, he sincerely asked if God had given them to him. From his reckoning, that wouldn't be without precedent. Perhaps his strength was like Samson's, or the fire from his eyes like Elijah's fire from the sky. Before Jonathan reveals the ship, Clark doesn't know if his differences are contingent on the pleasure of a deity, and that testing his limits might be paramount to testing his God. 
he wouldn't know if testing his limits might be like allowing his hair to be cut and suddenly making him vulnerable or uncontrollable. A reckless and less sensible kid might throw himself off cliffs to find out, but Clark is shown to be contemplative and obedient, even after Jonathan reveals the ship. It's not like the revelation explained the mechanics of his powers. There would be more reason to believe that his powers were based in science, but when the powers themselves defy physics and the foundations of science as we knew them, how could they predict Clark's limits in a way that could be prudently tested? There's no way to know if Clark's invulnerability comes from a force field that might suddenly leave him if taxed under the right conditions. They don't know if every hit he's taken is draining an unseen life bar or shortening his life. They don't know if high-speed lead might be his kryptonite. Jonathan feared Clark being taken away by the government, whose military has access to tanks and guns, missiles and bombs. There's no way that protective father would want to, much less have the ability to, test if Clark was impervious to gunfire, tank shells, hellfire missiles, and other military-grade munitions. Jonathan didn't know Clark's limits. He wouldn't have the ability to explore them, and he didn't want to. Jonathan wanted Clark to be safe. Now, when Clark set off on his own, his imperative to save people meant putting himself in harm's way, more than he ever had before in Smallville, and that let him grow to understand his powers. So by the time Clark was on the Debbie Sue, he knew that his powers might make a difference in the oil rig rescue. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if holding up that derrick was the first time Clark had his strength tested to that degree. Clark wasn't looking for tests, he was just looking to help. Cavill gives us a little insight into the mindset of Clark. Um, well, this movie isn't a superhero movie. It's a story which happens to have a superhero in it. And if we imagine what it would be like to be an invulnerable alien with these weird abilities, you don't know what they are, why they are, how they are, um, you don't know where you're from, you know you're not from here, and you can't ever fully relax around people. You can't ever truly be yourself. People may sympathize with you, like mom and dad, but they can never empathize. And and so you feel incredibly alone and you walk through life that way and you never know what the world is going to think of you if they were to discover you. But you keep on almost revealing yourself and if you do, you have to disappear and goodbye all your friends you made, those delicate friendships. So given that burden, imagine how much relief, peace and comfort Jorel's answers provide Clark in learning to know the how and the why of his powers, to know that the sun is his friend and having confidence that space is nothing to fear. Essentially, even if Jor-El explicitly says he doesn't know Kal-El's limits, he's provided the rationale for the powers, and now Clark can logically and reasonably test those limits. But more than that, he's released and encouraged to do so by Jor-El. Here, knowledge is power, literally and figuratively, to learn the how and the why of his powers. You can see the key turn and why he might boldly step out after this, and what better proving ground than the isolation of the Arctic, where there's no one to see you or to be hurt. In this moment, he's allowed to cut loose without restraint and with no repercussions, encouraged to test his limits, not just of the incredible powers that he already knew that he had, but imagine getting an added gift on top of all of that. Imagine being told, try flying, son, because you actually can. 
And he does, taking great leaps at first, which feel like a reference back to the character's flightless origins when skyscrapers might have measured a single bound. On his largest leap, he wills himself forward, and it takes, and he can't help but laugh with joy. Then he loses it, plummets, and unintentionally demonstrates his durability, reducing a mountaintop to rubble. In these brief split seconds, the filmmakers show us so much. The pure and unbridled joy of flying, even if only for a few seconds. The flight wasn't something that Superman just does, but something that he has to learn. And we get the impression that it's driven by willpower, wishing and wanting to go forward, and he does. We're also shown that flight isn't to be taken for granted, and that here it's delicate and fleeting, that a momentary loss of faith, will, focus, or whatever else propels him, and he'll drop like a rock. He doesn't just get to immediately impart his immense strength and power into his flight, at least not yet. And this is important in understanding the Battle of Smallville and beyond. This Superman at this stage can't simply move people around at will or become an immovable fixed point in space just because he can fly. By showing that he can lose his ability to fly, the filmmakers are priming us to intuit why he can be pulled out of the sky, prevented from flying, knocked off course, etc. later in the film. It's a subtle but critical nuance that completely diffuses the idea that Superman can just take Zod anywhere that he wanted to. It's a limitation, true, but it's tempered by coming on the heels of Jor-El imploring Kal-El to keep testing his limits. Superman may continue to explore and push the limits of this and other abilities as the cinematic universe continues. As he emerges from the crater created by his crash, we get Jor-El's voiceover as a way of accessing his thoughts. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun, Cal. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. I want to start with, they will stumble, they will fall. Because I think it shows where Clark's head is at. He could be recalling the technical details of how to fly, but instead he's recounting Jor-El's great commission to him. But it comes to mind just as he has stumbled and fallen. Clark still thinks of himself as one of the people of Earth, rather than the ideal to strive towards. Jor-El acknowledges this by putting everything in the future tense twice over. He says, in time. Just like Jonathan, Jor-El is giving his son a great calling, but he's also saying, not yet. Like the people of Earth, he gets up after falling, ready to try again. Now regarding join you in the sun, the phrase is clearly metaphorical, but it provides another possible reference to Plato, this time the allegory of the cave. We don't have time to get into that, but concisely consider it a turning point in enlightenment, indescribable to those yet to perceive it themselves. In terms of wonders, we don't know explicitly what Jor-El is talking about, and the imagination can run wild, but consider Consider what Crow thought about his character. When the time was right, you could be the bridge between two peoples. One of the things that's really important to, to Jor-El to try to communicate to his son whichever way he can is that these things that are different about him, these strengths that he has, these capacities, it's a huge responsibility. He's also really telling his son that you are a god and you have the power to create a race 
in the future, partially human, partially Kryptonian, but hopefully completely ideologically sound, and get beyond the mistakes made in Krypton in terms of where the planet ended up. There's a touch of madness to Jor-El. There's a touch of insanity in what he's doing, and massive desperation. I mean, as far as he's concerned, it's the last throw of the dice for the entire race that he's known. Jor-El's exhortation was metaphorical. He's not talking about humanity working on its tan. So it's interesting that Crow anticipates a literal new race. The movie isn't so explicit, but it's an intriguing endgame. Crow seeing Kal-El as a god is also interesting in light of Batman v Superman, but that's another show. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the obvious template for these lines is Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, which reads, You have shown them the face of the man of tomorrow. You have given them an ideal to aspire to, embodied their highest aspirations. They will race and stumble and fall and crawl and curse. And finally, they will join you in the sun, Kal-El. In time, you will no longer be alone. Clearly influenced by that seminal work, but it's because it works here too. It basically implores Kal-El to be an example and a beacon of hope and to be patient while humanity catches up and ends his isolation. Man of Steel is very much the tale of two fathers, and we'll go in depth into that in a future episode, but here we see that Jor-El is optimistic about humanity. Jonathan is skeptical of it. Jor-El can't imagine how Cal could be harmed. Jonathan fears that Clark could be harmed. Jor-El expects Cal to be seen. Jonathan expects Clark to be hidden until it's time. Jor-El knows Krypton's faults, but none of Earth's, and Jonathan knows humanity's faults, but little of Krypton. But all of that is another episode. Both fathers put significant responsibilities onto him, but he lets the sunlight fall on his face. He closes his eyes, gathers his thoughts, gathers his focus, builds up his power, and explodes into the air, truly flying for the first time. Until now, Clark's powers have always had to be controlled, and he has been. He's kept his strength in check to avoid hurting people. He's kept his senses focused to avoid overload and respect people's privacy. He's never lost his temper or lashed out with his heat vision, and he's carried the weight of that his entire life, nearly to the breaking point as we saw with Lolo's truck. But now, for a moment, he can completely let loose with this new ability to escape from those limitations, those responses and to be free from the bonds of gravity. Is there any wonder that he goes all out, like a great stretch after a lifetime being confined in a small space? He is free and he's away. Although Superman did not canonically fly at the start, the idea was perhaps always in his DNA, the wish fulfillment of his creators and their audience at the time. Writer Jerry Siegel wished, as everyone does at some point, he could fly away. Recess, too, was a trial, and oftentimes a terror for him. Tormentors were everywhere. Some tripped him as he tried to escape. Others punched. His very name became a source of ridicule. Siegel, Seagull, bird of an eagle, they would chant. If only he really could fly away. Certainly the power pre-existed. The first time a human imagined being a bird to mount up on wings like eagles. That impulse finding its way into our myths and legends of flying chariots, thrones and carpets, Pegasus, Icarus, and so on. More contemporary fiction included Peter Pan and Santa's reindeer, and even Siegel and Shuster's own Dr. Occult. Although canonically flightless, doubtless countless children saw the cover of Superman 1 and considered that a flying man. 
Inside the comics, Superman would change direction in air mid-leap or manage to catch people who had already fallen before him. Feats not readily explainable without flight. Even if, shortly thereafter, an issue might remind the reader that Superman couldn't fly. Other artists would also make this same mistake, assuming Superman could fly and drawing it so, and then correcting the canon subsequently. CBR's Comic Book Legends Revealed, number 373, by Brian Cronin, relates just such a story. I'll put a link in the show notes. This is a canonical stumbling block only to picky historians looking back to an era and an audience with nominal concerns about the ideas of canon canon or continuity. In fact, Siegel and Schuster would recycle stories and even panels much to the chagrin of their editors, who had a significant hand in assuring that Superman's stories would be consistent and novel. All of which is to say, in the hearts of minds of many young readers, Superman flew before he officially could, making the adoption and the inclusion of actual flight seamless and without fanfare in 1943's Action Comics number 65. In an era before continuity was carefully guarded, no one questioned this new unseen ability because, of course Superman could fly, hasn't he always? Certainly that seems to be the position of some today with respect to many of Superman's traits and trappings. Hasn't he always stood for the American way? Wasn't Smallville always in Kansas? Didn't he always have heat vision? Wasn't Superman always capable of anything? A Dudley do-right, a square who never kills. Superman predates Dudley by over two decades, incidentally. Superman is woven into the fabric of our culture and easy to take for granted. But like many of the other sources of inspiration we discussed at the beginning, Superman was able to appropriate and amalgamate flight into one of his defining characteristics in the public eye. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Up, up, and away. You will believe a man can fly. Why not you will believe a man can lift a car or turn back time? It's because Superman is synonymous with the fantasy of flight. Throughout the decades, considerable pains have been taken to turn that fantasy into reality. For Kirk Allen in the serial, Making Superman fly was a more vexing problem. The technical crew strung cables from the studio ceiling to pull Allen aloft and molded a steel breastplate to hold him there. And for 12 long hours, he was filmed dipping, banking, and yes, flying the way men had dreamed of since Daedalus built wings for Icarus. The flaw this time was the wiring. It was so painfully visible that the crew was fired and Superman was grounded. Filmgoers saw Allen poised on the window's edge, but what flew away from the building or any other setting was an animated Superman. He always landed behind a bush or wall, from which his human counterpart could dash out and resume the role. The effect was cartoonish. For George Reeves and Adventures, One premise that got more credible as the series went on was that a man could fly. After the early mishaps, a mechanical arm was rigged up and Superman lay on an attached plexiglass pan that had been fitted to his chest and thighs. The tray could be turned and tilted, with twenty stagehands pulling to lift and lower the lumbering arm and the camera following it on a hydraulic dolly. There were no more wires, although there still was a wind machine and compressed air to give the the feel of Superman whooshing through the air when really it was the filmed background that was moving. George was skeptical. I had to get in first, then my helper, and still one other guy to make sure it held, said Thal Simonson, who was brought in to manage the special effects. The aerial action happened now in three phases. George got a running start, jumped on a springboard positioned out of sight below a window, and dove head first through the opening and onto a pile of wrestling mats. Then came film of the mechanical arm moving him through 
through the air. The last sequence showed him hitting the ground feet first as if he were landing. This all-human, no-animation approach made more convincing not just the flying, but the science fiction itself. For Christopher Reeve and Superman the movie... It was like retrofitting it. It was getting everybody to figure out how we did some of the shots first. Therefore, what technically you had to invent to do it. And at what order you had to do it. That was the logic behind the schedule. When I took over, they told me it's going to be fairly easy for you because we've been in pre-production for a long period of time. I said, the most important thing is let me see your flying because if I couldn't convince an audience that this flying was real, you didn't have a movie. Then he went back to a TV show where he jumped out the window and he was on a board and you could see it. So when they showed me their tests, he jumped out of a window and he was on a board. I said, you guys are kidding. And on the first day of the flying, we were all there assembled. We were going to see, you know, what we were going to be doing. And they had the team of guys who did the flying in the Peter Pan pantomime. They kind of hooked up a guy, and there were three guys with a rope. And they pulled the rope, and the, the actor went up in the air. And I remember looking at Donna and seeing Donna's face, and he said, That's it? Then we knew we were in trouble. It was an absolute nightmare to make the man fly. And a fortune, absolute fortune to get there. You just can't give the special effects department, by that I mean all of the effects, too much credit for the most unbelievable job because they were doing things that just had not been done on screen before. I mean, I have no idea how they went about their work, except for the fact that it was like the Wright brothers. No one had ever made anybody fly on screen successfully. So, and no one had any idea three months before the picture how he was going to fly. And he flew green screen, black screen, blue screen. There was a little bit of animation. He was uh, on wires. He was uh, in, in gimbals that finally, that were very sophisticated. But 90% of the stuff was invented for the movie. And in the early days, we had little models of Superman. We'd fire out of cannons across the lawn at Shepparton Studios. I did lots of flying tests. We even tried flying upside down. All sorts of innovative things like that were, were tried and tested. Because we were quite desperate at the time, you know. We, uh, we, we hadn't really figured out how to make it most effective. Yeah, we could do it, but we really wanted to avoid this sort of visible... <laughs> tricks we wanted to be smooth i came up with a system for making things fly using two interlock zoom lenses christopher reeve would be basically in one place on a pole arm that's pushed pushed through the screen that you don't see and he's there and all he does is sort of make the moves and it's the camera and the projector that make him look like he comes straight up besides that you can rotate and um, you know, pan and tilt and do all that sort of stuff in addition. Chris had immense patience because, I mean, sticking the harness on a guy uh, and hanging you by the parts um, that aren't too comfortable for many hours at a time and him holding the pose and keeping his composure and then still having to actually act and react to something at the end of it all, you know, it's a technique. I mean, he, he had it down perfectly. I thought the flying was so dumb I thought there was no way this was going to work. So I just thought, we're flying around? And Donner would say, now you're going past the Statue of Liberty, and whoop-de-doo was what I thought. There was um, a lot of things during the flying scene that really tested one's confidence in the scene itself, where I didn't think it was going to work at all. 
Nowadays, when you see a man fly, hey, you want to see a man fly, you can fly. But in those days, you had to do it. And it was major, major thought process production. And narrowed down to a group of physical working people, not computers. But in those days, you had to do those things. And they were touchable and they were unreal. And we saw Christopher Reeve fly for the first time in dailies that it worked after a year and a half of trying to get it to work. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. I mean, he flew. He actually flew. It was amazing. For Brandon Routh and Superman Returns. For the 2006 release, Superman Returns, director Brian Singer set out to bring as much realism as possible to the movie's flying scenes with the help of the film star, Brandon Routh. I knew flying was going to be a challenging experience, um, but I didn't realize how much of an athlete I was going to have to be a way that we experimented with how the, the body moves and flight is we had Brandon swimming in a pool, and he's a, quite a good swimmer. And he would push off from one wall of the swimming pool, but because he was swimming, he'd be suspended, and then his body would exhibit strength or resistance in certain ways. And we would take video of this and then use that as a reference. And the many other iterations between before we came to Henry Cavill and the efforts of Man of Steel's cast and crew to make Superman fly again. Hey guys, I'm back. This scene's an excellent illustration of how we work with visual effects between Zach, DJ, and myself coming up with the best method for each particular gag, action, or scene. In the beginning stages of testing for this scene, we tried various different wire configurations, both on winches, uh, hand poles, computerized winches, uh, cylinders, etc., to try and come up with the most realistic, best way to fly uh, Henry. During the process, we always have the visual effects team on board with us, as well as the director, so we know which would complement each scene. In other words, when is it best to do it live action? When is it best for DJ's team to take it over digitally? In the end, we found out that the best way to fly him for this scene was to look to our visual effects brothers. We did use a gimbal for many of the close-ups of Henry when he's starting to lose his stability and he's getting ready to crash. Those you cannot capture digitally, so we needed that human element. But again, as far as the majority of the flying here, it's all our uh, visual effects brothers. Hey guys, um, I'm back and I brought DJ this time. Crazy. Thanks for bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> and we wanted to talk just briefly about the philosophy of visual effects. Because look, the movie's gigantic. Of course we have spaceships, of course we have planets, and we have Superman too, but the idea that, how do you make Superman be super? What do you do uh, from a visual effects standpoint? The idea was that if Superman does anything, it's gonna have to be um, a visual effect. Whether it's what? Flying. Flying, lifting, anything, really. Punching. Smashing <laughs> stuff. Smashing stuff, yeah. Destroying anything. He's a sci-fi character, basically, so it becomes a visual effect really fast. Uh, some of the proving ground for that was, even in first flight, I think, when we talked about, like, okay, how do you make him fly? And even Damon, we were like, okay, let's put him on a wire. Right. A lot of the stuff he did in his uh, training facility to do his stunt viz did have the wires, right? Because right. he wanted to, to show, you know, here's the body language and all that stuff. And then you'd approve that, and then Damon and I would go back through it and go, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, let's, that's a superhuman hit right there. Let's switch out there. One thing not mentioned in that segment is that the flying sound effect from the TV show was featured in Superman's first flight as an audio Easter egg. The stunt teams, trainers, and visual effects worked tirelessly to bring flights and the fights to life. It's a cool way to make a movie. You know, it's a cool way to get someone to do something that they'd never done. And I think that that's what Mark loves to get at and kind of mess with. 
to take these people who've chosen to be actors who experience emotion in a way where they're analyzing it as they do it. I think for him, those guys in the gym are really interesting because pain and fear, success and joy, all those things are present. It's there. With an actor, the reward of the suffering is really evident and you bring that to the movie. It's, it's fun. It's not the kind of training which just makes you look pretty. It's the kind of training which, first and foremost, is useful. I didn't realize like how difficult the stuff that I was doing was, but because I trained with Jim Jones, I've been given that, at the very least, core strength. Any type of action, any type of stunt work, specifically wire work, you need a strong core and you need your muscles to be lengthened, you need them to be strong and you need to be stable. If you don't have any structure, any muscle tone to hold that together, you can get injured. So being in shape is an enormous advantage. Flying was one of many attributes that we had to really, really take our time, figure out how do we do this correctly. We went from wire rigs to gimbal rigs where we had more of a base plate. You name it, we explored it. Thanks to DJ, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of takeover with, with CG, but we still do what's called a performance capture where we fly our guys on wires and DJ uses that base movement and builds over it to give it that human connection. In this film, you're gonna see Superman flying faster than he's ever flown before. It's hard to come up with those speeds. Zach and I would sit down and come up with a scale. So we have some sort of rules, a playbook, right? Some guidelines, foundation to go, okay, let's try and not violate these. So basically, we take that as a reference and then we build all the physics around the action to see if it makes sense or not. Most movies will have three big elements that you have to achieve throughout the course of the movie. And this one has you know, 11, 12 giant sequences. I thought it was just completely impossible to make, but that it was gonna be great if we could pull it off. Challenge is always to make the actor do the most of his physical abilities, of course, without asking them to do anything too crazy. The most you see the actor performing their own stunts and action, the more rewarding it is for us. We do stunt viz to figure out all the beats, create the action, get everyone on the same page so we have a much clearer vision when we actually get uh, on set to shoot it. They show us the entire fight scene. They say, this is what it's supposed to look like, obviously in a very, very basic version. And this is the one piece we're doing here. And that did make it a lot easier. Otherwise, we'd be a little bit lost, I think. Henry's been fantastic. Total trooper. Inherently trusts the stunt department. We always show him video beforehand, say this is what's going to happen with one of us in that situation. So he knows what's going to happen. He knows that we've already done it, that we've got his best interests at heart. That's when we started coming up with how fast Superman flies. Damon and I sat down and said, oh yeah, we'll be able to photograph these pieces but there's these other pieces that we can't photograph. We want to keep as much real as possible, period. You know, we want to see the nuances of the face and when the hair blow by and, you know, the cape, and we want to be in there. We want to be in there. We want to be over the action. We want to constantly push back the digital handoff. And as long as we can push that and keep that real, then visual effects is not taking over. Visual effects is assisting what we're trying to do. And we're trying to keep it as real as possible to the last possible moment. We want to be able to have these guys really do some of the moves so that when we get to the pauses in the fight or the moments where your eye is going to dwell on them, it's really them. When you're doing something which is physically taxing and all around tricky to do because it's so new, it makes it that much easier when you've got guys are actually enjoying it with you and, and having a laugh and having fun and working exceptionally hard to get it right too. It's been great fun working with the guys, doing the wire work for hours on end. 
there's a lot to be said for it because you get to fly <laughs> and that is fun. It is interesting though, like for instance, when you flew the first time from the ground, right? Like we were doing a shot where he flies away. It was like actually one of the first times we shot in the suit, right? Yeah. So it was Amy and Henry coming down on a wire and they had a dialogue scene and then Henry flies out of the scene. And we hadn't talked about it, like how it was gonna end, right? Cause he's just supposed to, it's a visual effect. He just goes and flies out of the, the scene. And so Henry did this thing where he like, he like inhaled deeply and kind of like looked up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's the flying away. Right. Yeah. We never went like, okay, when I finish the dialogue yeah. and I have to fly away, happen? is there anything I should do? She yeah. just walked off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he had to do this thing where he did his fly away, then he had to duck down. Right. Yeah, it was right. really bizarre. People who didn't know, and it happened to quite a few people <laughs> on camera, who didn't know what I was doing, they'd just be staring at me while everyone else was doing that. <laughs> Despite all that work, they had fun and enjoyed the project. The lengths they went to is reflected in how they approached the mythology. For me, I just take this this mythology super seriously. I grew up with it. You know, don't take it too seriously. It's only Superman. Well, my point of view is like, take it very seriously. It's Superman. The gravity in approaching the material meant a thoughtfulness in every aspect of the film, asking the why of the suit and even the why certain scenes were shot a certain way. It's always a leap of faith with Superman because he has these extraordinary powers that are impossible, right, to imagine. But making an effort, even the smallest effort, to kind of try and dig down and just sort of understand a little bit of the why of it allows it all to kind of, even just the suit itself, having the suit be cultural to Krypton, makes you go like, oh, okay, like that's why he wears the suit. It's mm -hmm. not a, in some mythology, you know, like, oh, Martha sewed it out of a blanket that was in his <laughs> thing, you know. These little things that are like a little kind of hard to kind of get your head around. We just wanted to make it easier for the audience to go like, yeah, because every step you take in that direction allows you to get inside his head and then allows you to sort of see the world from his perspective mm -hmm. and that's that's fun to do just initially sort of the concept of how we were going to make the movie i wanted to try and make the movie in the most realistic way i could because i felt like superman is already this fantastical being he does impossible stuff so the more sort of embellished the photography is the further away he gets from you because it's just more style on top of style and i felt like if i could shoot the movie in a way where it seemed almost hard to photograph like when when he's flying or whatever you know we try to make it so that that's not an easy thing to film you know he's if you can imagine trying to film superman flying mach 5 or whatever you know the camera's constantly vibrating or whatever that was the idea and so in the action sequences we tried to put the camera in a place where you could see the action but a lot of times you're seeing the action and then suddenly those characters just like fly out of frame and they like just then you have to jump to another to catch them coming in rather than you know where the camera links onto them and we fly up with them and crash back down and there's some it was really about sort of that almost like war correspondent version of the those kind of fights and i think it, it really when they do move fast it then becomes like shocking because they're so they're so fast you realize that to fight them is impossible the way that translates to the flying and those sequences i said okay we filmed the movie in a kind of a handheld way it's not shaky handheld but it's the cameras there's a person it's very quick alive yeah yeah so when we filmed soups flying i said okay these shots would be hard to do that way right that means that there's someone on a rig somehow flying in front of superman trying to film him i want to feel that in the photography so what we did is when we filmed Superman fighting or flying, we really tried to approach it philosophically. It's like, where would the camera be? How would we shoot this? Even if it's a whole full CG shot, we'd be like, where would the camera be? Like, would we be in a helicopter? Would we be on a platform? How would we shoot it? 
And so that that either shakiness of the camera or difficulty in getting the shot or focus or all those things, those are all translated into the CG sort of point of view so that the same stuff that's giving you the emotion of feeling like you're really there because like it's an observer is also helping to create the energy in the fight sequences and the flying sequence. And that leads up to the flight sequence. Superman comes out, you can't really see him that well. Then he walks, you finally get a glimpse of him when he's, you get the cape and all that stuff. It's kind of like cryptic a teeny bit. And um, I wanted that first bit to be like, it's not easy to fly, right? So I wanted you to feel like flying is not a thing that even for Superman, that's incredibly easy. But once he gets it, it should be like this, um, you know, it's like incredibly liberating for him. The other thing, I wanted the flight to be um, slightly uh, violent in while he's in the air. Like you imagine like if you could just go somewhere, oh, I want to go there and you could just go, you just, you'd go fast. And so when we photographed him, and you know the scenes where he's flying, you can sort of see his face. I, I was like, those should look like they were difficult to photograph because if, going that fast, you know, the camera would be all shaky. And I think that's also what gives you a sense of that it's actually happening. That there's In that last clip, flight was described as liberating. And I just wanted to take a moment to consider the implications of flight for Clark in this story. The power of flight comes with the gift of super speed, allowing Clark to go anywhere, anytime, at will. Before, Clark's transient lifestyle meant he could rarely accrue the kind of material goods that so many of us take completely for granted, like a personal automobile. Cars tend to leave paper trails and are costly to abandon every time Clark is compelled to help. So as we see in the movie, Clark was dependent on hitchhiking, never quite able to completely control his comings and goings. Borders and boundaries would be a problem for him if his papers weren't in order or if he had to burn another identity. It's quite probable that an alien who traveled light years across a sea of stars to land in Kansas found himself constrained to the continent until now. Clark's paperwork problems might even make commercial flight prohibitive, again reinforcing his reliance on the road. Irony of ironies, his first flight may have well been the first time that he had ever flown by any means. But what a means. This power of flight is also the gift of family and friends. Clark's dependence on anonymity and hitchhiking surely strained his shot at happy homecomings to Kansas. The same problems of privacy and lack of permanence probably meant that Clark didn't carry a cell phone and relied on payphones, if that. So his quest for answers and identity would have been incredibly isolated and lonely, disconnected from the one person in the world who completely knew him. Flight meant that Clark could see Martha for comfort, counsel, or company with but a wish. At a moment's notice, he could see her face, feel her embrace, eat her cooking, and sleep in his own bed. Home could actually be home again. The power of flight means that he could enter and leave at will, undetected and with limited repercussions compared to his ordinary means of motion. And that means that the friendships broken and abandoned could be revisited, reevaluated, and perhaps resumed and explored. Clark could select and connect with a trusted few using his power of flight. And in fact, that's exactly what he does with Lois Lane, deciding to descend and extend an offer of friendship and intimacy a whole new world of others and no longer being alone. The physical world would also become paradoxically larger and smaller all at once. Clark could suddenly explore the entire world, the entire thing all within his immediate grasp, traveling from the Arctic Circle to the African savanna, buzzing zebra in a nod to birthright, and then to the white cliffs of Dover, through the canyons of Utah, and to the edge of outer space. Anywhere that he had dreamed of, any place that his young mind had read about, 
when fastened to the farm, was his to behold, perceive precious, and pledge to protect. Is it any wonder that Clark commits to Earth over Krypton, having only just discovered an iota of how incredible it could be? Flight might give the gift of perspective. Clark realizing perhaps that he's the only one who can perceive Earth as he does, from his vantage point, with his senses, his experiences, and his powers. A fragile blue marble that only he can protect. When made to weigh the stakes, that planetary perspective is less myopic than collateral concerns. And after a lifetime of living with us, this Superman doesn't judge us from above, but identifies with our everyday struggles. This deliberate approach by the filmmakers of delayed gratification recognized flight for the gift that it is, rather than something simply assumed or taken for granted as it has been for so long. If we think through the implications of his life before flight given by the film, suddenly the depth of Clark's joy of flight goes well beyond just amusement and the smiles that we saw. Flight would be, and it was, a completely transformative experience. And if we open our hearts and our minds to empathize with him, we can fly too. Everybody wants to fly. Who doesn't want to fly? I hope you enjoyed this extra long episode. Hopefully it holds you over until our Comic-Con reaction episode, which may be delayed because I'll be on a trip, but I hope to get back to you as soon as possible. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet, are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Carousel Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener, and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have a question you want answered, or insight you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.